I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Tea and Murder, an Agatha Christie podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. We're part interview show, part book club, all Agatha Christie. And I'm here today with Caroline Crampton, author and host of the She Done It podcast, which if you're not listening to, you should definitely get on it. Hi, welcome, Caroline. Hi, thanks very much for having me. So pleased to have you here. And um, we are going to get into She Done It very shortly, but would you first tell us a little bit about how you came to Agatha Christie and her work? It was completely at random, a chance <laughs> encounter. My family was on a seaside holiday and we were staying in a B&B. And bed and breakfasts in the UK often have that random shelf of books that other visitors have left behind in the past or swapped. And I'd read all the books I'd brought with me, which were, I don't know, probably babysitters clubs or pony books or something. <laughs> I was about 11 or 12, I think. And I found a random book on the exchange shelf that was the Tuesday Night Club, which is that first Miss Marple collection of short stories yeah. that Christie put together. And so that was my first Christie and that was my introduction to her, which I actually think was a pretty good one in the sense that I got to meet a major character straight away. I've heard from other people who, you know, first ended up picking up a Parker Pine or something and Ugh. that's confusing. <laughs> And I think also the short story approach there with different characters telling stories to the, the group, I don't know, just gives you a good introduction to the different variations on the murder mystery that you can get. Yeah. So altogether, I think that was a that was a good first encounter. And when I got back home again, I immediately went to the library. I took all my problems to the library in those days, still do, and just started taking out every Agatha Christie book they had in whatever order they were available. So I got a very disjointed picture 
initially of what she'd written, how much and in what order, which gradually over the rest of my teenage years, I managed to sort out into a bit more of a coherent understanding of who she was and what she'd done. Mm. And what were the books that kind of caught your attention or the ones that really kept you reading? Definitely. And then there were none. I'm sure everybody says that, but it is just true. It's an incredibly compelling book. I also developed... I also developed early on a preference for Five Little Pigs. I still really like that book and think it's a masterpiece. And not to uh, preempt what we're going to talk about today, <laughs> but Murder in Mesopotamia was an early favourite mm. and one that I reread often, even in those first few years of exploring her work. Yeah, were were you a rereader or are you a rereader? Oh, definitely, yeah. 100%. And I've, I still think I discover new things, learn new things each time. I'm not and never really have been a very puzzle-driven reader. So I, the fact that I know what happens, or maybe could half remember in some cases, doesn't bother me at all. That's, I, I read for character, for social history, for atmosphere, for lots of other things beyond that. I'm on, on exactly the same page. And that love of Agatha Christie is also matched by your love of other golden age literature. Can you talk a little bit about the She Done It podcast and what it's about? Yes. So She Done It is a storytelling podcast where I look at the whole golden age of detective fiction, that period between about uh, 1920 and 1940, where the golden age murder mystery form really flowered and became really popular. Agatha Christie was obviously one of the prominent authors who emerged during that time, but there were others like Dorothy L. Sayers, Anthony Barclay, plenty more who all came up around the same time. They were all part of this cohort, this group they formalised with the name The Detection Club. And so the podcast really just explores that atmosphere of creativity and all of the different influences that were going into making it this this really productive period. And I also look at things like the real life cases that inspired those writers during that time. And I've looked a bit at some of the things that came after that period had ended, like what the legacy of it was. So yeah, there are some episodes about Agatha Christie, some episodes about other single authors like Dorothy L. Sayers or Marjorie Allingham, and then some more collective ones about general themes. Yeah. And if you had to point to a couple of other authors, other than the ones you've just mentioned, that you think readers or listeners who are listening to this podcast would like, who would you point to? I always like to tell people about Nio Marsh. I feel like she doesn't necessarily get the love and respect that her books deserve. She's so consistent and she has this really solid, dependable Scotland Yard detective who is just flash enough to make things fun, but he <laughs> isn't too eccentric or odd and I also love that her books travel you know she has books she was herself from New Zealand and she spent a lot of time in Europe so you've got books set in different parts of the UK books set on ships books set in the southern hemisphere I think that's really fun mm. and then I think I would also uh, recommend that people get involved with ECR Lorac who's one of the writers that the British Library have been really successful in republishing through their British Library Crime Classics series she also wrote under the name Carol Karnak. She was so incredibly prolific that her publisher said, we can't put all these books out under one name or you're going to flood the market. <laughs> so she did one wow. Carol Karnak and one ECR Lorac a year for about 25 years. Oh, my God. Uh, and she had a different detective for each name. Um, and those are just a, a real pleasure. But I particularly like the ones that she wrote during the Second World War. 
because she was one of a small number of writers who was both writing and publishing during the war. So she was writing about the war as it was happening. She didn't know what was going to happen. She didn't know how it was going to turn out, who was going to win, what was going to come out on top. And so the things that she picks out to base her plots around are not necessarily the things that get given prominence in retrospectives in history books, but they obviously felt really important in life in 1941. And I really like that. That sounds fascinating. And what in terms of when you talk about themes, what are some of the themes you see that kind of Agatha Christie exemplifies across Golden Age murder or crime fiction? Well, I think there were a few things that she was very good at right from the start. And one is an intuitive understanding of character. So she was very good at developing characters that had lots of different facets to them without seeming to overwork it. I think we've all read books where there's just too much description of what a person is like and it's either tedious or it makes your mind immediately lock on to this person's going to be the murderer because otherwise I wouldn't need to know so much about them. (laughs) Whereas Christy just has this really deft way of sketching people in a way that makes them feel real and complex without them being weighed down with words so I think she was doing that right from the very start then I also think she has a very good way of making seem things that are very difficult seem very easy and I only really started to read this once I started reading other writers who were writing in the same genre and you start to realize oh this is just like such and such a Christie book but just a bit worse just a (laughs) bit easier to see what's exactly the mechanisms going on are. Um, And I think some of that might come down to the fact that she was also a gifted playwright. And so when you write for the stage, which I've done a tiny bit, you just have to keep cutting things out and cutting them out because you have to constantly realise as the writer that the actors are going to do a lot of this. If they're good, they are. And you don't need to write in all of this. He looked across at her longingly. No, they're going to do that without any words required. And I think Christy was good at doing that in prose form too. I completely agree. And also to your point about her being able to sketch out character, um, one of the things that's always impressed me about her work is you read the first Poirot, you read the first Marples. um, Those characters are exactly who they are from the very beginning. They arrive as complete characters. Um, And that to me is uh, just a sign of her skill as a writer, but also her vision of who she wanted to include in those books. And it's not standard. That kind of consistency is not standard. When I look at other Golden Age writers like Marjorie Allingham, for instance, who I do really enjoy, but her detective, she did write most of her books about this same character, Albert Campion, but he's completely different in the first book. In Mm. fact, in the first book, he's more like a secondary character. Mm. And then she kind of picks him to be the star of the next one and that does well, so she keeps him. But he changes completely over the course of 20 books and so on. Mm. Uh, The same can be said for Lord Peter Whimsey, Dorothy L. Sayers detective. Over even a shorter span, 12 books, he goes from a kind of P.G. Woodhouse buffoon in the early ones to this really quite complicated and interesting and uh, quite troubled character. But he didn't emerge fully formed. She very clearly didn't know where she was going when she started. And I think that's something that Christie did very well. 
she created these characters. And some could say that she stuck with them as they were for commercial reasons, but she was clearly onto a good thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, in terms of She Done It and the podcasting world, you've been doing this since 2018, is that right? Yes, November 2018 was the first episode. And tell us a little bit about kind of your experience with the the community of listeners that you have, because I know you have so many listeners and they're very passionate. Yeah, well, that's been the best part for sure, that the vast majority of people are so enthusiastic and so keen. But what's been really interesting and kind of surprising to me, because I started the podcast purely as a personal hobby, I wasn't really designing it for an audience or anything professional like that and I assumed that my quite nerdy take on these books would really be something that would appeal to other people who were as deeply sunk into this genre as I was and so that the people I would be talking to would be people who'd also read all or most of the work by these various writers we've mentioned and who were in the business of you know chasing down rare missing books from their list mm -hmm. but that's not how it's worked out at all in wow. fact I definitely have those listeners but they are definitely a tiny minority I get messages all the time from people saying I'm so excited to learn that there are other writers than Agatha Christie from this period and that was a real surprise to me I assumed I would be talking to the existing enthusiasts not to you know people new and still discovering but I think that speaks to also how engaging your podcast is. And you, even though it's such, it's so highly researched and it's so well written, it does not speak down in any way to the listener. I think it's a very, it's a great introduction mm. to those authors, but one that immediately brings you into the world without making you feel like you have to kind of know everything. I'm glad that's how it comes across because that's definitely the intention is I do want to still be able to speak to both of those groups. I would like the episodes to be accessible. If you've never read, say, a Marjorie Allingham book and it's a Marjorie Allingham episode, but if you have and you have read most of them, I hope there are still things in there for you to enjoy too. Yeah. And I'd say it's not a balance I actually think about a ton. Uh, I still subscribe to the somewhat self-centred mode of content production, to use that awful word, which is <laughs> if it interests me, yeah, then I feel like it'll probably work. Well... If it, it's working for you, so go with it. I, it works for me. I love listening to your podcast. Um, but I think that's a great segue in terms of the types of books if we're talking about Murder in Mesopotamia, which is the reason for the season. That's why we're here. Um, so I'm just going to do a quick historical note about Murder in Mesopotamia. Um, published in both the US and UK in 1936, Murder in Mesopotamia is a Poirot mystery set in an archaeological dig in Iraq with inspiration for the setting taken from Christie's visit to the Mesopotamian city of Ur with her archaeologist husband, Max Malawan. Uh, the book is was a commercial and critical success, although the conclusion was generally noted as, uh, quote, close to impossible, <laughs> which you could say about so many of Christie's uh, <laughs> twists. Um, this is one of the few times in which there is a female first-person narrator, Nurse Amy Leatherin, uh, in addition to um, narrators like Anne Bedingfeld in The Man in the Brown Suit, and Miss Marple does narrate one time in the first person in Miss Marple Tells a Story. Um, Murdered in Mesopotamia's main character and victim, Louise Leidner, was based on the personality and life story of the archaeologist and close friend of Christie, uh, Catherine Woolley, which is something you talk about quite a lot in 
um, your great uh, episode, Carl, called Agatha's Archaeologists, which I recommend everyone definitely listen to, and we'll have that linked in the episode notes. Um, so let's talk about murder in Mesopotamia. Caroline, can you give us a one-minute or so synopsis of the book? Yes, yeah, so as you said, narrated by nurse Amy Leatheran, who is an English nurse who has come out to the Middle East working with a woman who's travelling there. She's looking around for a, a job to do for a little while in the area before she's going to go back to England, I think, on a different job. And a local doctor who she knows puts her in touch with this community of archaeologists, a few few hours travel outside the, the main town, where there is this woman, Louise Leidner, who it's a bit vague as to why she needs a nurse. She, The nurse spends the first few chapters actually trying to work this out. You know, is Louise Leidner's husband worried that she's uh, got mental health problems, potentially suicidal? Is she in fact a hypochondriac and he just wants someone to cater to her? What is going on? And her conclusion via her various interviews with people, characters early on is that this woman is mortally afraid that she's going to be murdered. She's terrified of all strange men that she sees. And this sets up an atmosphere of sort of fear and tension in this community of archaeologists in this closed courtyard house that they all reside in. And that's the setting for this mystery. And when Louise Leidner is murdered, you've got the perfect scenario for a very, uh, very disturbing, I find, story set out out there sort of in the desert thank you that was perfect um and as as our listeners will know we do sometimes spoil the books so you're welcome to do that you don't have to but um as uh, if we would like to talk about the ending we can do that as well um so tell me why you chose murder in mesopotamia because i i found this fascinating i love this book i reread this book fairly frequently i do prefer an appointment with death as in terms of like of the archaeological <laughs> dig books <laughs> that she has done, um, that is a preferred one. I think it's such a fascinating psychological study, but this perhaps has a more dynamic plot. Um, tell us, tell me a little bit about why you chose this one. So this book unites several different things that I like in Christie: the character formation that we talked about already. I always enjoy a Poirot. I often think they're some of her best books. Uh, so I like it when it's a Poirot mystery. Yeah. I also, though, like what you said before about how you know he only comes in really in the second half. He's not an on-the-spot character. He's brought in as a consultant. And I think that's a good feel for Christie around this time in her career when she's starting to get a little tired of him. And she <laughs> yeah. doesn't like to write him too much. Yeah. I think the ones where he swoops in in the sort of latter half, third of the book aware he doesn't get too annoying to either author or reader. Then this is also an interesting book in its format. You mentioned how it's a rare book for her with a first person female narrator. So it's interesting to me that she's trying something there. Mm -hmm. And then also it's a rare one for her, which is what we might call an impossible crime or a locked room mystery. Mm. And I am going to talk with full spoilers because I think it's really the only way to explain what I mean by that properly. Yeah. Which is that the way Louise Leidner is killed, she's found dead, having suffered a blow to the head inside her locked bedroom in which the windows are barred. No one could have conceivably climbed in or out. The door is under constant observation during the period in which she has to have been killed. So no one can possibly have got in to strike this fatal blow, and yet someone did. 
And that's the impossibility of the impossible crime. And Christie didn't go in for this kind of technical puzzle mystery very much. Other writers like John Dixon Carr are much more famous for it. But she did do it a few times. This is one, uh, Hercule Poirot's Christmas is another famous example of it. And I think it's a really good test for her skills. And I like to see what she makes of it when she's not allowing herself the luxury of, uh, you know, concealing possibilities that are perhaps a slightly less rigid structure mm-hmm. gives you. So for all of those reasons, uh, I like it. And then, of course, there's just the setting and the... I always think when write You can always tell when writers are setting a book in a place they've never been. Mm, totally. Um, and Christie has definitely lived the life that she is portraying that these characters in. We know she did because of her non-fiction writing on the subject. And yeah, I really think that that, um, that elevates all of it, that kind of detail. I totally agree. And I think there are some elements where unless you knew something about her work, you might not kind of pick up on it. But like she, you know, became a photographer in order to photograph um, her husband's archaeological findings or their digs findings. And so kind of talking a little bit about um, the photographer and the person going into the dark room, and you just can see all these little glimpses of things that she kind of knew so deeply in terms of the routine and rhythm of how an archaeological dig functions that I'm sure um, people who like would know that world would find very comfortable. Um, and obviously for a person like me, she could say anything and I would assume she was telling the truth, but I, you really get a sense of place, but also a sense of um, like the rhythm of the work that she understands. No, absolutely. And also the, different specialists who are present on the dig you know you mentioned the photographer there's you know the uh the expert in wax seals and tablets right there's the sort of archaeologist the the premier archaeologist and then his various younger assistants of whom her husband had been such a one and all these different people have a, a different function on the dig and a different interest in what they're doing and that's the kind of subtlety that you don't need in a mystery novel it's not essential that we know, you know, what uh, Mr. Mercado is doing versus Dr. Leidner. No need to know that. But it enriches it that we do, I think. I absolutely agree. Um, and Nurse Amy Leatherin is a character that that I like very much. Um, and I like her first person narration. Um, in contrast, I really can't stand Anne Bedingfeld in The Man in the Brown Suit. Um, how do you feel that this narrator kind of stands within the first person narration that Christy usually does, particularly with women narration, because it's so, so infrequent. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting that with Murder in Mesopotamia, she gives us a very clear scenario for why this is in the first person. Yeah. We get this meta-narrative of Dr. Riley, the doctor who sent Amy Leatherin to this job, has asked her to write an account after the fact. Mm-hmm. So this is someone writing after the fact. And while she doesn't do a lot of the kind of Mary Roberts Reinhardt had I but known type stuff (laughs) in the narration. There is a little bit of the sense that she's allowing us to know that she knows which parts are significant because she's already lived through this and she knows the conclusion. And I think from a kind of critical theory, narratology perspective, that's really interesting that it's first person narration with purpose. It's not meant to be a kind of contemporaneous documenting of the events. And then I also think it's very characterful. We really get a lot of Nurse Leatherin 
in her narration, even though we never get to see her from outside. We never really get anyone else's unbiased perspective. We get a few remarks where she reports what Poirot has said about her to her, but we never get anyone else's first-person idea of her. And yet you can picture her so vividly. You know, she's practical, she's sensible, she's no-nonsense, she's very caring, Mm. and she's also just a little bit fish out of water in the Middle East in a way that I think we'll come on to talk to talk yeah. about as well. But yeah, she's a very practical woman trying to uh, fit in in a new situation that she doesn't really know much about. And she's also quite funny, <laughs> I think. She I, is, yeah. Yeah, I, she's, she's got that kind of wry humour. Um, and I sometimes think that Christie's sense of humour gets a bit lost um, in the way people talk about her, but she is quite funny and she likes to slide little jokes in. And I think... An, Another great element of uh, Nurse Leatherin's uh, first-person narration is that she's able to have some personality, um, and it's it's quite fun and funny, and she makes little jokes here and there. I really enjoy it. Yes, definitely. And to contrast her with Anne Bedingfield, mm. which, I mean, I almost think that book isn't a mystery at all, to be honest. No, it's, a, it's an adventure, kind of, yeah. It's like a breathless sensation adventure novel. <laughs> yeah. Almost, although not written for serialization entirely very well suited to that I think more than novelized publication yes and it's just an entirely different kind of voice a much less thoughtful voice I think you can really tell that you know 10 years and more passed between the writing of those two books yeah and you know Christy had a lot of life experiences Mm. um, personal and professional in between them and I think it shows in the quality of of this novel versus that one Mm. yeah and I also think it's an interesting contrast in how Christy writes about or has women I suppose speak um, generally and you know she had a obviously a complicated relationship to feminism she did not call herself a feminist Um, but I do think that she kind of ultimately believes in the competence of and the power of observation honed in women and like how do you feel that this book approaches kind of questions of feminism because I do think that nurse Amy Leatherin stands in such stark contrast to Louise Leidner who is kind of a pitiful character and is kind of blamed for her own death as a result of being an appealing woman. I don't think Christy either perceived or gave much credit to the structural ideas around gender that are so essential to feminism. Yeah. I don't think she really saw that Nurse Leatherin and Sheila Riley and Louise Leidner were the same in any way. Right. I think she saw them as very distinct types of types, person. Yeah. I think she had met in her life a lot of Sheila Riley's, mm-hmm. say, but <laughs> yeah. she wouldn't she wouldn't class those different women together and say, you know, these women all are a class together and they have something in common. I don't think she would have seen that at no. all. And you can tell that in the way they're written and the way that she feels no compunction in describing different women through Nurse Leatherin's narration in very pejorative terms sometimes. There's very little sense of solidarity or sisterhood to be mm-hmm. found in Christie, I think. Yeah. I also think that part of her... Downer on Louise Leidner comes, I think, from something that she felt personally, mm. which is that there's such a thing of being too ladylike, mm. that you can be ladylike to excess where you start to actually ruin life for all around you. <laughs> and I I first got that sensation from 
reading something in Christie, I think it's in her autobiography, and I think Max Mallowan also mentions it in his autobiography. It was clearly a really significant moment for the pair of them where when they first met, Christie was just a tourist in the Middle East and she went out for a tour of the dig where Max was working mm. and he was assigned by his 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 version of Dr. Leidner to tour this this woman around the dig and show her the area and right. so he was driving her around and at some point during the day their car just completely broke down would not work neither of them could get it to work and Max was clearly bracing for I don't know what he thought hysteria tears panic and instead Christy just thought it was all a great joke you know they they talked they waited I think they went for a swim they generally had a nice time they hitched a lift from a lorry going past they spent the night in the local police station cell because it was the only spare you know bed in the village and then they went back the next day and he was so impressed by her sort of calmness and her competence and her way of just taking these uh, impediments and these impracticalities Mm -hmm. that I think he basically looked back on that and said you know that's kind of when I began to think "Mm, yeah you know I, I could be married to you and this could be fun yeah um and so I think that's how Christy was herself. She was very much Nurse Leatheran, shall we say, in the sense of, you know, you just roll with the situations you find yourself in and yeah. there's no point in making a fuss. And I think if you imagine somebody like that in that situation, imagine how she would feel in the presence of a Louise Leitner character and you start to understand why she wrote those women the way she did. I always think to that line in there's it comes up in Miss Marple a few times where she says a lady is never surprised. Um, and I think that mm. that very much is Agatha's voice coming through of like you never you never need to show shock, you never need to make a fuss about things. you just roll with it. Um, and that is Miss Marple's version of what it means to be a lady. Um, and I think that was Christie's as well. Yes, I think the kind of emotional manipulation that Louise Leidner goes in for using her immense I think she's supposed to be very physically attractive but she also has this very magnetic personality Mm -hmm. that very attractive people sometimes do and she uses it in a really twisted way just a you know around the dinner table with the team on the archaeological dig she deliberately needles the clumsy young man and makes him drop things because she thinks it's funny Mm -hmm. you know she's really in some ways quite a power crazy character yeah she's using her the control that her personality gives her to make yeah. other people unhappy yeah but in other ways you know we kind of don't dive into I think sometimes the seriousness of what she was going through which is that this is a woman who has been getting death threats for years uh, credible death threats for years and she is in a state of high anxiety at all times um, and so that can make a person very highly strung. And, you know, I can't imagine what that would be like, but I would assume it would be a very traumatic experience. Um, so I, I sometimes wonder at the characterization of her because I don't know that it's entirely fair to talk about the dramatics of somebody who is, you know, it's like kind of like hypochondria, right? Like if you're really sick, is it hypochondria? No, you're just you're sick. Um, you might be a, you know, like a melodramatic person kind of within your character, but that there's a difference between imagining something and, and really having it happen to you. Yes, definitely. And I think that speaks to Christie's general dislike of women like Louise Leidner. Yeah. But it does also play a function in the plot that, yes, these death threats are absolutely real. Like no one disputes that the 
pieces of paper they're written on. Definitely right. real. But Nurse Leatherin spots and Poirot also notices and investigates a bit later on that the handwriting on these death threats is quite a lot like Louisa's own handwriting. Mm -hmm. And throughout there's this suggestion hanging over that is this in fact just another way in which Louise is dramatising herself mm -hmm. and making herself the centre of attention. Yeah. It, and yeah. I think that it's not always productive to try and imagine how these scenarios in these books would be dealt with in the modern day. Of course. But this is one where I do think it is, where I think I would like to think today if a woman in that situation had been receiving actual verified death threats, right. the first thing her husband would say to a detective would not be, I think there's a strong chance that she made this up. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, like the murder has taken place, sir. Like we've seen the outcome. <laughs> yeah. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, so there, there is an element. And, and it, it, I always think of it in contrast because I think they're quite similar characters within the mirror cracked from side to side. Um, the main character in that book also is receiving death threats, but she has written them herself. Um, and there is kind of a, but the characterization of both of the women is actually quite similar, which is that they're very beautiful, very dramatic women. Um, so that's always interesting to me. But going back a little bit to your point about kind of how it's not always productive to read things in a modern lens. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of the colonial elements of this book, because I think those tend to come out the most strongly in Christie's travel books um, for obvious reasons. She's in a different place than England. Um, but how do you feel like this affects how we should read the book today? You learn a lot in this book about what it would have been like to travel as a white person in the Middle East <laughs> in the 1930s. Yeah. yeah. And the pretty much low regard in which anyone who is not white is held. Yeah. By those travellers. You know, all of the principal characters in this book are white. The uh, servants in the archaeology house and in the city and on the dig are all not white. They are described in a variety of pejorative ways. Yeah. And they very rarely get to speak. They're honestly their only function in this book is to provide kind of local background colour mm -hmm. to, to the scenes and in the crucial part of the plot where it's necessary to establish whether anyone could have gone into Louise Leidner's room there is a boy washing pots in the yard who can swear blind that nobody went past him for the entire crucial hour and that is sort of the basis on which the impossibility of the crime rests right um and other than that these people are given no humanity and no personality yeah so we should caveat what I was saying earlier about Christie's gift of building up characters she doesn't bother to do it for everybody That's and right. that is telling she also gives Nurse Leatherin a lot of kind of unpleasant language when she's talking mm -hmm. about non-white people mm -hmm. in this book you know they're described as being dirty and yellow and uh, noisy and smelly and lots of very classic uh pejorative and negative stereotypes that's right. that you find in lots of books from this period. So that's, I think, all to be expected. As you'll say, any seasoned reader of Christie will sort of know that the travel books tend to have this kind of stuff in it. What I will say that in this book, we don't get what you get in some other Christies, which is where she uses people's perceptions of stereotype as part of the plot. There are definitely books where the way someone 
behaves towards a Jewish character or behaves towards a non-white character ends up being important to their ultimate path in that book Mm -hmm. and she's sort of playing with the fact that oh the reader will assume that the reason everyone was horrible to this person is because he was Jewish Mm -hmm. but actually it was something different (laughs) is the reveal we don't get any of that in this book I don't think I think the Arab the Arab characters are just described that way because that is how Christie would have perceived them yeah simple as I agree we spoke earlier about a particular murder in this book that really stands out to you can you speak about that a little bit Yes. So this is a murder that has haunted me ever since I first read this book when I was a teenager. That's amazing. I I honestly think it is one of the grimmest deaths in all of Christie. Yeah. And this is the death of Amy Johnson, Mm. who is one of the archaeologists uh, on the team. She's very devoted to Dr. Leidner. And she's she's the classic second death in the book in that she's someone who has begun to realise things about the first one. She's let on to the general community that she uh, she's just seeing she's seeing some gaps in the story. Yeah. And lo and behold, she wakes up dead. <laughs> and the specific way that she dies is that this is where Christie's archaeolog- archaeological knowledge really comes in. They've been using, I think it's hydrochloric acid to clean very delicate pots that they found on the dig site. And somebody substitutes Amy Johnson's uh, bedside glass of water for a glass full of neat hydrochloric acid. So when she wakes up in the night and wants a glass of water, she drinks this acid and she immediately dies in a really horrible and painful way. And there's this description from, obviously, Nurse Leatherin is narrating it and she's the one who comes, tries to come to her aid and she talks about all of the different treatments that she tries and all the painkillers she administers and the ways that she tries to help this woman, but she can't. And when the doctor eventually gets there, he has to say to the nurse, like, you you definitely did everything I would have done, but there was nothing that could be done. Yeah. And it's just very different to the somewhat bloodless, often off-screen death we get in golden age murder mysteries it's yeah. the the pain is described it's really visceral yeah and it's all the more moving and affecting i think because it is someone who you feel hadn't done anything wrong the deaths in golden age detective fiction are often tied up with justice uh, you know we feel that the the good get what they deserve and the bad get what they deserve too and mm. this isn't that amy johnson was ultimately a good person she was loyal she was helpful and she was kind and she got something really bad for that yeah and even her murderer at the end he calls her death senseless um and he i mean his reaction to even being found out is i think very fascinating but um it is a very affecting murder and it is a very, as you say, visceral murder. And it's one of the only murders I can think of, I, perhaps I'm just not remembering, where we really see a medical attendance on the death. Um, and perhaps that's we're getting that because we have a nurse narrating. Um, so we get to have that like additional element. But for that reason, I think we feel it much more deeply Um even then Louise Leidner's death. I mean, you know, she's hit over the head and she, I think all we get is like, she was a crumpled heap basically. Um, yes, exactly. So she is, she's a lot, Louise Leidner is a lot more like your classic golden age corpse in yeah. that she's alive and then she's kind of off screen for a bit and then she's a corpse. Yeah. And we don't 
see that moment of transition. We don't experience it. Whereas Amy Johnson, the nurse comes to her when she's still alive and she stays there through her death. And then she's able to describe it and how horrible it was and how affecting it was. And that is rare, definitely. I can't think of another example where that happens, Mm -hmm. especially not to such a otherwise positively drawn character. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think it's I think it's very effective and very interesting that uh, that Christie chose to do it in this book. I agree, and I and as you say, I uh, Anne Anne um, Johnson is quite drawn out as a character. She's not kind of a secondary character who dies um, as a plot point. We really get a lot of her characterization beforehand. So I think um, we feel connected to her, and then when she dies, it's all the more shocking. Yes, absolutely. She is an important, she's an important character because she occupies that rare space where I don't think we're ever really meant to suspect her. No. Because she's, she's so, she's honest, she's transparent, she's clearly upset by what's happened. Yeah. Um, And, and therefore, I think you see her as a kind of, just generally on the side of good. Yeah. (laughs) And, and it's, it's transgressive that therefore she, she is killed. I agree. And I think she's also, her goodness is used as a shield for Dr. Leidner because how good she is and how much she trusts and loves him is kind of, I think, what keeps the reader from ever suspecting him. Um, and so I think she's also useful in that way. Yes, I think that's very astute, actually. Yes, that uh, he does get a lot of emotional cover in this book. Firstly, the idea that Louise Leidner, for all that she can be emotionally manipulative, she is clearly quite an extraordinary woman. The fact that you know she's happy to be married to him sort of seems to speak well of him. The fact that we're told repeatedly that before this particular incident, they'd been such a happy group on this dig in years past, and <clears> he's <throat> the leader of that. He sets the tone. Poirot actually talks about this towards yes, the end he of does. the book. Yeah. He says, you know, you've all commented in various ways about the tension that was present this year. I think atmosphere often comes from the leader of a group and you know so if things were tense it's because he was tense that's right and yes definitely the loyalty he provokes from amy johnson from um, mr carey as mm-hmm. well who's that's also right. shown to be a very honorable character mm-hmm. this all seems to be setting up setting us up to think well of him that's right when, of course in fact he is the ultimate villain of the piece. <laughs> Not a nice guy. Uh, but he is actually an interesting villain because there's an element of once he's committed the crime, all that everything leaves his body. He seems to not really care that he's been found out. He admits to it immediately. Um, he's got this kind of faraway look in his eyes while Poirot is telling this absolutely insane story where even for Poirot, <laughs> it's a long version, you know, where he like is constantly taking us on red herrings of who might have done it, who might have done it. And it's like so emotionally <laughs> exhausting to hear this whole speech. Um, but they're all like in it and um, they get to the end and Dr. Leidner is just kind of looking out the window, just so um, shriveled in a way, deflated. Um And that is, it is something I think we've seen with other villains, but there's something about the act of killing kind of released his anger um, that I find very fascinating as a kind of psychological characterization of why a man would kill someone he loves. Um, Because in simple terms, that's just, we expect men to kill their wives um, in 
in crime. Like that is, that's the number one thing. Right. Um, but she's, she's taken it to a level that I think is quite an interesting study. Yes, absolutely. And also I think we think of that kind of, yes, wife murder as often being a very, uh, rage induced instantaneous thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is years in the making, (laughs) you know, he's been plotting this for years or, or at least laying the groundwork for the possibility. Right. That's what's so interesting. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, that I think adds a whole other dimension to the psychology of it. Yeah. And this is where we get into, I think if there is a major criticism to be made of this book, (laughs) it is the fact that all the way through, we've had this uh, question being asked that, you know, Louise Leiden is receiving these threats. It seems most logical, even Poirot says this, that it has to be coming from either her first husband, who she essentially dobbed into the US government for treason, either from him in a miraculous survival or from his younger brother, who could be uh, bearing a grudge for this. And Christie's solution to this is to suddenly reveal at the end that Louise's first husband and her second husband are the same person. (laughs) The same person, right. And that even she, Louise had not recognised him. Yeah. And I think that, for me, is the part that truly stretches credulity. I am actually more ready than possibly most readers to go along with the idea that, in this time at least, a man could sort of disappear for 15 years, come back, and most of his professional and personal acquaintances would be happy to be introduced to him afresh as a different person. Mm -hmm. Because I just think it was a different time when it comes to identity. We're so used to the idea now that people leave this sort of digital trail behind them Mm. that is accessible to most people. So you could quickly, you could go, oh yeah, that guy, he really looks like this guy I used to know called Frederick Bosner. I'm just going to look up his old Facebook pictures (laughs) and like, and check. We're so used to that. When in fact there was no such thing. And I think people were just much more in the habit of taking people at face value because that is all you could do. Sure. It, it unless is, you were going yeah. like, unless you were gonna, you know, travel to another country and look up records and stuff, which most people are not. You just you just believe people. I don't, however, believe that a woman could be married to the same man twice without realizing. So it would make more sense to me if she knew. But didn't realise he was the one threatening her Ah. and was happy to go along with his deception for the sake of, you know, redeeming her previous actions in, uh, you know, turning him in. That to me would be just about a believable plot. I I like that too. I think that would be much more believable. Yeah, it is kind of the Clark Kent defense of like he put on glasses and became an archaeologist and he was (laughs) she couldn't remember that she'd been (laughs) married to him. Um, And by all accounts, they had a very like a very intense marriage where they were very engaged with each other. And it wasn't some kind of like pre-war marriage where people met and immediately went off their separate ways type of thing. Um, And also she is really characterized as an observer of humans. Um, She's characterized as someone who deeply understands human psychology, particularly that of men, and is able to use it against them. So this kind of complete blank spot that she's drawn for a man that she was married to and has married again uh, just doesn't quite ring true in terms of her characterization. 
no, you're absolutely right. If she's good enough at reading people and observing human nature that she can, you know, make this young guy drop the salt every time she asks him to pass it to her, then there's absolutely no way she wouldn't also notice, even if you just take physical likeness out of it, which is not reasonable, but let's just... She would notice, you know, the way he eats soup and the yeah. you know way he brushes his hair and the fact that he likes to you know put on pants before socks or all of these little idiosyncrasies that make a person a person mm-hmm. and when you are married to or very close to someone you know them she would definitely notice 100% agree um moving a little bit in a different direction with her character so you have a book coming out next year on the history of hypochondria and we've talked a bit previously about Louise Leidner char- char- is characterized as a bit of a hypochondriac. Um, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yes, I think it's absolutely fascinating. The more that I have sort of combined my work on hypochondria with my general ongoing study of detective fiction, mm. the more I see hypochondriacs everywhere, <laughs> especially in female characters, because it's just such a... Li- societally legitimate reason to doubt why someone yes says what they say or that what they say they experience isn't true which is absolutely what you get with louise where uh, you know there's a suggestion that all of the nervous symptoms which is such a classic thing in hypochondria these sort of symptoms that can't really be attributed to any particular disease but could just be all in the mind, you know, headaches and shakes and sudden fainting fits and that kind of thing. They could just be the product of her uh, either consciously or unconsciously inventing drama to uh, put herself in the the centre of the, the social circle. Or they could just be, which I think is far more reasonable and rational to conclude as the reader, they could be, as you suggested, the product of her just being really scared that someone's going to try and kill her. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. But, and and this is where, you know, if you like to reread these books, you get to really enjoy this on second, third, fourth time through. You get to see how even in the hack, even in the act of hiring the nurse, Dr. Leidner has effectively ensured that no one will believe anything Louise says. Because sensible women do not need nurses hired for them. Only uh, hypochondriac, uh, absurd, nervous, hysterical women need expensive nurses to Mm -hmm. take care of them 24-7. So even in that fundamental setup of the book, which is the arrival of the narrator, Louise is being undermined. Yeah. And what's interesting is that, um, I mean, you can talk about gaslighting, but Dr. Leidner does not gaslight Louise. He gaslights the rest of the crew so that they gaslight her. And that, I suppose they're not gaslighting her because they're not doing it intentionally. They're just creating an atmosphere of mistrust. But um, that is a very fascinating element to me, that he kind of creates these undercurrents of mistrust and lays that foundation so that when she kind of comes forth and says what's going on, people are giving her a side eye. Absolutely. It's very clever, both... Mm for him as a character, but also for Christy to put it all together. Because yeah. to her, he's a very supportive husband. Right. You know, he he will take her anywhere she wants to go and he'll do anything. He'll change her room. He'll get her a nurse. He'll do anything that she feels she needs mm-hmm. to make herself more comfortable. But yes, when he's discussing 
uh, and he's so reluctant to share these details <laughs> right. with his colleagues. When they they get these details out of him, they they realise that, oh, he is worried that she's doing this herself. And then he allows that speculation to grow. Mm-hmm. Almost by um, allowing the vacuum, as we know, you know, when you don't give people accurate information, they speculate. And that's what he very ably does. Mm -hmm. And it's so effective. And we see this that even with Dr. Riley and his daughter, Sheila, who don't live at the dig and rarely visit, even they are doing it when Nurse Leatherin meets them. You know, Mm -hmm. she is pre-introduced to the fact that, oh, Louise is probably lying about this before she even meets Louise. So effective has his campaign against her her been. That's right. And uh, just to wrap up, I'm interested in your take, because you do have this great episode, Agatha's Archaeologists, which, again, will be linked in the episode notes. Um, But you, you know so much about kind of her archaeological work. And how important do you think or how how much does it add as a reader to know that background before reading her books that take place on these digs, like Murder in Mesopotamia, like um, They Came to Baghdad Has Elements of It, like um, An Appointment with Death, for example? I don't think you need to know it at all. I think Christie is certainly skilled enough as a writer and good enough at knowing which information to share and which not that you can absolutely, as I did, you know, when I was a teenager, I didn't mm. know anything about Christie's biography. Yeah. And I immediately, you know, latched onto this book as a favourite just because its level of detail makes it feel real. And you can tell that even if you don't know anything about archaeology, you just get this sense of the atmosphere and mm. how how uh, immersive it feels. Yeah. Much later, when I came to be interested in this and researching it, I think it just adds more. It yeah. makes it... It makes it richer, but it doesn't mean that your initial experience isn't enjoyable. So I've greatly enjoyed learning about Christie's uh, forays in the Middle East, not least because what she was doing was so unusual. It was. So few women of her age, and even, to be honest now, get to have the experiences that she did. Yeah. And to do the things that she did. So I find it all fascinating. I think it generally enriches the experience, but I don't think it's necessary at all. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And uh, there was a, a great line that you mentioned from, is it Barnard's book about um, the only real work that seems to get done in Christie novels is archaeology, <laughs> which I just think is such a, so true. It hits so home. Um, but I completely agree. And everyone should listen to She Done It. I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast already does, but um, we are so grateful that you are here. Thank you for joining us tonight. And um would you like to be found by the good people of the world? And, and if so, where can they find you? Yes, absolutely. So you can find me doing the She Done It podcast in any podcast app that you choose to use. Just search for She Done It. And you can also find uh, other information on its website, shedoneitshow.com. And the show is also available on Instagram and to a lesser extent, Facebook and Twitter, all under the handle She Done It Show. Perfect. We'll have that all linked in the episode for you. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. This was such a pleasure. And I'm sure we could talk for another five hours conservatively on this topic. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Thanks, Caroline. Good night. Thank you to our producer, Kate Rochelle, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. To stay up to date and get some extra fun info, you can follow us on Instagram at T and Murder. 
rating and reviewing us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts really helps, so please do that if you feel so inclined. We're on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please remember to follow us there and recommend us to anyone you think might need a little tea and or murder in their lives. The next installment of the book club will be featuring The Mystery of the Blue Train. Rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookstore, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. The link for next episode's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We'll be back in two weeks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.